You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, what it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that in the U.S., genetically modified organisms are in about 80% of conventional processed industrial food. Most foods that contain GMOs are also processed foods, which is one more reason that you might want to think about eating real food. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guest knows a thing or two about genetically modified organisms because he's Dr. David Bronner, grandson of the late Emmanuel Bronner, who founded the famous Dr. Bronner's Magic Soap Company. If you listen to this podcast, the odds are that you've probably walked into any organic grocer anywhere in North America and found these crazily labeled bottles of soap that have nothing in them but like soap. <laughs> and they're made from conscious ingredients. In fact, Dr. Bronner's is one of the world's largest personal care companies that's fully certified as USDA organic. And David's been president of the company since 1998. Uh, he's also a practicing vegan. So David, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
If you're watching this on video, uh, you'll see that David has like an epic painting of a dragon up behind him. And if you're driving in traffic, well, you missed out. But it's uh, it's cool. So I'm, I'm really stoked to have you on, man. You're, you're representing a, a company that's that's pretty epic in terms of, of the amount of time it's been out and just the, the commitment to quality and even some like, you know, softer, gentler principles around uh, you know, being kind to your neighbor sort of thing. So what, what's the deal? What's the history of Dr. Bronner's? Yeah, well, um, yeah, we have the extreme good fortune to uh, uh, our grandfather, me and my brother, uh, Mike, are 50-50 in the company. My mom's CFO, my brother-in-law is chief operations. It's a total family affair. My grandfather was himself a third-generation master soap maker uh, from a German-Jewish uh, soap-making family in southern Germany. Uh, his grandfather started manufacturing soap in 1858. By the time my granddad was born, the family enterprise had really uh, gotten pretty big, and there's three different factories in southern Germany, including Heilbronn, where um, my granddad grew up. And he was a pretty intense guy from day one. And uh, he, you know, he was in his 20s, in the late 20s. Um, and he had been apprenticed to a master soap maker in the guild system of the time and had the equivalent of a master's. But this is also the time of Hitler and fascism and the rising tide of just badness over there. And my granddad was like pretty Zionist and political. And, and his dad and uncles who were running the show were more kind of bourgeois assimilationist. The madness is going to blow over. And there was this kind of constant generational clash with, with them on that. Also, he had newfangled ideas on soap making and just a lot of generational whatever. And he, so he finally bailed and came over here in 1929, became a consultant to the U.S. soap industry. You know, things were getting worse quick over there. He was, you know, trying desperately to get his parents and, and, and family out. Then he did get his two younger sisters out, but his parents refused to leave until it was too late. Nazis nationalized the factory in uh, 1940. Uh, parents were gassed soon thereafter. At the same time, his uh, wife, my dad's mother, died when my dad was very young, when he was four. And so it's a lot of tragedy hit my granddad all at once. Um, and he's always like kind of a mystical, spiritual dude and just had these like very intense uh, experiences of, of experiencing like in this pain and tragedy, also this divine oneness at the heart of reality. And felt urgently called that if we don't realize this transcendent unity, across religious traditions and ethnic divides in a world of nuclear weapons, we're going to kill ourselves. And he called, you know, so he, he felt called on this mission that, you know, he had to convey this like urgently or, you know, we were going to all perish. And at the same time in the post-war era, this is the better living through chemistry and diverse industries were moving into petroleum as the primary feedstock. So even personal care and body washes became petrochemical detergent based in you know, like my granddad's natural family soaps, this old world quality is really fantastic, ecological, biodegradable, high quality soap is no longer in vogue. So he um, was, was kind of launched his own soap business, but mostly he was going around the country lecturing what he called the moral ABC and advancing his peace plan and selling his soap on the side. And he realized people were coming to hear him speak more to get the soap than necessarily to hear what he had to say. And that's when he had the insight to put his message on each bottle of soap he was selling, uh, which, you know, and the soap always was more to sell the label than vice versa. And it was genius. I mean, how often do you go to the bathroom and you forget a magazine or whatever and, you know, he's got you. 
and you know <laughs> just like you know and uh, and uh, with rise of the counterculture rejection of corporate America you know looking for you know the soap is perfect it's biodegradable versatile easy to wash your you know body hair kids dog plates you know wash by the river not worry about it you know and this message is you know peace just really became the iconic soap of the era and then eventually with the with the health food movement you know there's a real pioneer in, in that as well it just kind of you know just grew up with the kind of counterculture health food movement but always he ran the comp the company was always a non-profit religious organization all in god faith it's still a corporate name uh the irs disagreed with his uh, ta uh, uh tax exempt self-designation and uh so he lost in the 80s the irs and was forced into bankruptcy and his health was failing my dad at that point uh kind of took the reign my dad had his own company that i grew up working in uh, chemical specialty uh, consultancy. Um, he developed, among other things, firefighting foam for Monsanto's then firefighting division. Uh, so I grew up selling firefighters on on foam, which is now pretty standard on structure and forest fires. And so, anyway, so you know, uh, even though so my dad reorganized the, the company as a as a for profit, but we have this non profit kind of religious DNA, and all profits not needed for like we cap all our compensation at five to one. And all profits not needed to reinvest in the company are dedicated to the causes we believe in, you know. And among other things, that's you know fair trade, sustainable organic agriculture. Uh, I feel like the industrial agricultural machine is just out of control. Um, the seed industry in this country has been bought by the chemical industry, and you know, fast forward now, I mean, they're engineering resistance, genetic engineering resistance to the pesticides, so that they can blast our, our food with just increasing amounts of toxic pesticide, and it's just totally out of control and unsustainable. You know, we're also very uh, involved in, in recommercializing industrial hemp, um, cannabis reform generally, uh, re, you know, kind of integrating psychedelics consciously and responsibly. I'm on the board of MAPS, uh, yes. multidisciplinary associated psychedelic studies, and we actually hosted them at the Burn this year. And they're just, you know, I think pretty much one of the best projects on the planet and, you know, helping. Talk, uh, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I, I've touched on my own use of ayahuasca and things like that, but I, I suspect some listeners might not know about MAPS. Sure. So MAPS, uh, it's, it's somewhat of a mouthful, but it's, uh, it stands for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And its founder, Rick Doblin, just uh, he founded it in the mid-'80s, the year that DEA scheduled MDMA, uh, ecstasy, um, like MDMA had been used by an underground psychotherapeutic community with great, um, just huge positive results, treating trauma and helpless counseling. And, you know, inevitably, though, it got out onto the street and became this huge recreational deal. And then, you know, DEA, this is the same order drugs, uh, drug war, Z-Lot, hysteria, scheduled it. And Rick did a great job fighting the machine. And there's actually a really good book out there. I highly recommend called Acid Test, and it's a, primarily about Rick Goblin and his project. Um, so he's just been working the system. He actually went to the Harvard Kennedy School, um, did his PhD on bringing psychedelic medicine through FDA approval process, which he is now in the process of doing, and he's just working the system hard. Um, he's just getting high-level allies plugging into this project. Um, he's getting huge support now from the Veterans Administration and just making all kinds of headway because obviously the military's got a huge problem with treatment resistant PTSD. Um, you know, all these veterans are just completely traumatized and, and their suicide. There's more, you know, people 
died more from suicide than actually in a war. And it's horrible, but this is basically a Morocco drug. This is a, a, a drug that when it's used in a, in a psychotherapeutic context with a trained therapist, just enables incredibly difficult emotional material to be worked on and, and without re-traumatizing the person, which is kind of the problem with PTSD is when those memories come up, they just re-traumatize and it is, you know, it's just a bad cycle. But Rick's also been very open about non-medicinal use and we kind of sees it all as medicinal. And, but he's also involved in uh, cannabis for PTSD, LSD, psychotherapy. I mean, the primary project focus is MDMA just because organizations need to focus there's another organization called Hefter uh, that's doing the psilocybin, like doing really good work with psilocybin over at John Hopkins, bringing that through for end-of-life anxiety and cancer patients and having some really incredible results and there's some real nice coordination going on. But I guess MDMA and psilocybin are kind of the main, and ayahuasca are kind of like the main psychedelic medicine crossover points into the larger culture ayahuasca because it didn't have all the baggage from the counterculture in the 60s it's like you know and it's kind of more or less impossible to use recreationally <laughs> you could say that again <laughs> like, you go to a rave and throw up on everyone and then lay around yeah that's just not so not so fun yeah right i mean it's <laughs> like it's like some hard difficult work right i mean it's great when you're in the blissed out love space but yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Now, now you're actually supporting these things with your work with Dr. Dr. Bronner's, or are these sort of like, do you make uh, donations to these, or are these are sort of personal projects you work with? Like, what's your relationship with uh, these these companies, or say these nonprofits who are working to legalize molecules that exist in nature? Yeah, so I would say it's like my personal professional life are integrating ever more closely. Um, you know, I have a very supportive family, and it's a little spicy. You know, we each kind of have our projects and uh, and and kind of passions and causes. And this one is maybe a little spicier, and traditionally it was kind of handled outside the company. You know, even though that was where the funding source was. But I think uh, my family is getting more comfortable with us being kind of more public about it. But it's still a little bit in the background. I mean, we're more public facing on other causes such as, you know, fair trade or GMO labeling or organics, you know, psychedelics is still somewhat spicy, but nonetheless, it's like hugely important for everybody to stand up and kind of speak out because, I mean, the, the, this is a religious war on our sacraments and the way we're going to fight and free them is, you know, standing up to the power and, you know, being, hey, I'm a responsible business person, rocking my life, father, coach, you know, son, whatever, husband, and these sacraments and psychedelics are very helpful. So as that happens, kind of like taking a page from the gay rights movement and just coming out and speaking your truth, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, I'm many of those things. And yeah, I have, psychedelics have improved some of my levels of performance and certainly haven't harmed me. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you're willing to talk about it, you find out that there's someone on either side of you who also did it and just never mentioned it. So it, it's, it definitely has some of the flavor of what happened in the sixties and seventies with the gay movement where like, there's more of it happening than, you know, right. Yeah. And you just give permission to open up cultural space. And that's what Rick was. I mean, he was doing this back in the eighties, you know, and it's crazy. And I can't imagine, you know, during the height of the drug war hysteria, this guy's just, you know, super brave and smart and strategic. Um, 
and and also very honest too. I think some of the problem coming out of with Leary in the sixties was there was like let there was not enough attention or honesty about how difficult and terrible the psychedelic experience can be. <laughs> it, it can be ruinous if, if you do it the wrong way. There are people who've been harmed by them. So, you know, you, when you play with powerful things, you can be hurt. And that's kind of the true of almost anything, whether it's a drug or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and oftentimes the most, you know, rewarding um, experiences are when you have to go, you know, you go through the real dark, hard stuff, but that's where the real work is done. And in maps, you know, like on Ply, for example, they have a, a project called Zendo. And, you know, if you're having an overwhelming psychedelic experience, instead of going to the med tent with the fluorescent lights and pretty much the worst possible, <laughs> you know, you can go to, you know, this really sweet kind of chill space with trained sitters who just kind of hold space and help you navigate through to a positive outcome. You know, just having this much more realistic approach that like, hey, you know, just kind of stay with the difficult material. You can work through it, you know, and, and help people not get stuck and kind of traumatized. So That's uh, I didn't realize we didn't have talking about that, but that's that's really cool um, that, that you're taking some of your, you know, your corporate side and you're applying it towards lobbying for for things that that honestly, I think it's hard to argue that we don't have a right to chemistry <laughs> but like sorry this stuff exists in nature and people have been using it for tens of thousands of years uh and some of it's new but hey it's it's mine it's not owned by anyone and certainly i i just can't fathom the reason that it shouldn't be legal at least in some circumstances but well let's talk about the flip side of that though because hey if it's okay for you know you and i to have psychedelics isn't it okay for monsanto to you know, hack some seeds and spray a bunch of crap on the soil. Um, what What's the difference there? Like, like, why are you opposed to GMOs yet in favor of, you know, legal chemistry in, in other areas? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not in principle opposed to genetic engineering. Um, you know, I, you know, the technology is used appropriately, for example, uh, uh, making uh, insulin for diabetics. Yeah. You know, engineer E. coli, so you don't have to grind up a whole bunch of cow pancreases for insulin anymore and that's that's great and i'm a biology major myself and i was cautiously optimistic about this technology as applied to agriculture and like a lot of people still do today you know i you know i like to think oh this is about drought tolerance and reducing chemical inputs and kind of all the things people like to think is happening but you know in the last you know five ten years it became increasingly clear that in fact what is happening the applied applications we only have two traits over 99% of genetically engineered crops in U.S. soil engineered to do two things. One, produce insecticide, or two, tolerate herbicide, like huge amounts of herbicide. So it's, you know, and, and, and both traits have rapidly created resistance in, in the respective insect and, uh, you know, pest populations. The, the, in, the insects and the weeds have now developed resistance to these chemicals rapidly, which every weed and pest scientist not on Monsanto and Dow's payroll was warning was going to happen. Most like overdosing antibiotics in factory farms has rapidly created these super germs that are antibiotic resistant. So it's, it's the same thing. It's just this massive blasting of, of chemicals and herbicides rapidly created this resistance, which, you know, either they're the dumbest people ever or the smartest. And I think they saw this coming a million miles away. And much like Enron kind of gained their energy markets and, you know, bamboozled our cultural elites, you know, oh, this is a whole new energy, you know, next level entity that's going to deliver cheap, efficient energy. 
And it was just like a whole, you know, sh- you know, scandal and, and sham to its core. And I feel like that's this is what's happening. I mean, the chemical industry is taking over the seed industry and our food markets and it's gamed them so that they're just they're selling more and more chemicals, even as they're spinning people like, oh, we're reducing chemical inputs. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, and in fact, just today, EPA just uh, uh, gave final approval to 2,4-D soy and corn crops. And 2,4-D was is, uh, is half of Agent Orange. It's a super toxic older herbicide that we were supposed to not need to use anymore because we had glyphosate, you know, we had the Roundup Ready crops that take that glyphosate is, you know, supposedly less toxic herbicide. It's going to take care of the problem and the weeds and you know, now that doesn't work on half the country. So now they're desperate and they're bringing back this older, much more toxic herbicide um, and just got our, you know, the Obama administration, the USDA EPA to, to green light it. And um, you know, it just shows the power of this industry. And they, they buy out both parties and they get their people in the USDA EPA and FDA. And, you know, so we're just, you know, basically getting our, our food is just increasingly saturated in their chemicals and, Genetic engineering is this process on steroids. This is not backing off, you know, this whole kind of charade of, oh, we're going to have less chemicals because of genetic engineering is, is completely false. So the, the real issue is, is more so the excessive use of chemicals, or are you also concerned about like, like just the built-in production of pesticides? Is one of them a, a bigger issue to you, or are they both kind of equal evils? Well, they, I mean, it's important to understand that the that even though the insecticidal protein, the BT protein, is produced inside the plant, your the plant is expressing this insecticide over the entire growing season in every single plant, or every single cell of the plant. And this is the opposite of, of what's called integrated pest management, where you use chemical controls judiciously, just as needed, uh, with non-chemical methods like you know cover cropping and rotations, crop rotations to break pest cycles. And instead, we, they, they've just been blasting glyphosate and, and, and using the BT insecticide on these corn-on-corn-on-corn cycles that, you know, just because, you know, we got the ethanol boondoggle where, the, you know, 40% of corn acres now is going into our cars and it's completely inefficient negative energy return model of, you know, another scandal game that they've got going on. So expressing the insecticide within the plant itself, I mean, you're still you're putting huge amounts of this insecticide into the environment. And that is rapidly selected for resistance. So now they're putting all these soil-injected insecticides, again, that we're supposed to not have to use anymore. Now we're using 50% of the BT corn crop. And even worse are the neonicotinoids. So in the last 10 years, these are the systemic insecticides that now coat 90% of corn and soy seeds, and two of which are now banned in Europe because of their pretty much proven link to colony collapse disorder in bees. You know, this is like the, the BT trait doesn't work because they just overdid it. So now, you know, now they're now they're just putting all these other more powerful, worse insecticides than ever. So it's kind of the same. You know, it's 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 the same result, even though the insecticidal protein is, is expressed in the plant versus, you know, producing an enzyme in the plant that allows you to blast it from the outside like they're doing on the herbicide. But you're getting in the same place. So. A lot of the, the research that I've done on this it involves uh, soil biology. And when you spray glyphosate, what you're doing is, is you're making the soil fungus pump out 500 times more of the toxins that it makes. So like if you know penicillium 
makes penicillin, you piss it off with glyphosate, it makes 500 times more. And in this case, penicillin is useful, but the other poisons that molds make, you know, they, they kill animals, they kill people, and they, they can have devastating effects on your autoimmunity and things like that. So by genetically modifying the seeds and then spraying this stuff there, what we end up with is a whole broken soil biome. And a lot of people listening, they understand like a gut biome, like this is the bacteria in your stomach, we all know about probiotics, but the same thing happens in your garden. And when you start spraying this stuff on there, it's kind of like what happens when you take a bunch of antibiotics. It destroys your ability to break down your food and we've done it to our soil. And that's the reason that I'm particularly concerned about genetically modified organisms. It, it's the spraying of the chemicals. And there's also probably some immune and some allergy things and some fertility issues with genetically modified seeds themselves. However, I don't think there's enough research to say that conclusively, but I, I would like to know so I could experiment and see whether I'm eating it or not. And what work are you doing around just labeling of GMOs? Yeah, well, I mean, labeling is key because, you know, once you give consumers informed choice, then they can make wise choices to not consume the genetically engineered food. And, you know, and I, and I share, like, I mean, I'm not necessarily super motivated by the potential ill effects of the genetic, you know, the, the actual genetically engineered proteins themselves. But, I mean, it does give me pause and cause for concern. But there is no doubt that, that the herbicides and the insecticides are very toxic, and that's very much saturated on our food. And, and then to the point you're making there about the soil, I mean, that's crucial. I mean, we are, we, it's dirt, it's dead, it's not these. They, they, they take genetically engineered corn to harvest. They're using eight, at least eight different pesticides now. And that's the, they're using the, there's fungicides that never were necessary. And they need to put like three different fungicides on them. They're using two or three different herbicides, two or three different insecticides. I mean, these, the, the plants are sick, the soil's sick, the system's sick. It doesn't have the natural beneficial organisms. It doesn't have natural pest predators. I mean, it's just this completely broken system and they're just pouring more and more chemicals into it to, to get these things to harvest so yeah so so labeling is is you know just kind of the easy initial step i mean banning these things is a you know i mean that'd be great but that's a bigger lift and you know a lot of people are not ready to go there but you know you can have a debate about the marriage or lack thereof of, of genetic engineered food but we all have a right to know what's in our food and that's something that's a winning proposition Except for, of course, these guys have infinite money and, you know, just spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars confusing people to vote against their own interests, making up stories how a simple label disclosure is going to drive up cost of food, 800 bucks, you know, a household or, you know, just 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 spreading all kinds of disinformation They never take on labeling directly. It's always kind of like, well, you know, labeling might be a good idea, but this is just the worst measure ever and just make up a bunch of crap about it and it's just like the same type of regulation in effect in 64 other countries that american food companies already label for but you know they've just successfully been able to manipulate and confuse voters to vote against their own interests california super disappointing washington super disappointing but we've learned from these campaigns the food movements really get intact together we just won in vermont in may um, this is like a huge breakthrough. Jackson County in Oregon, in Southern Oregon, led by family farmers because uh, the, the, they banned genetically engineered crops 
And the Willamette Valley grows out a lot of the organic seed for the rest of the country, or just seed in general. And they're growing out of those herbicide-tolerant, Roundup-ready sugar beets. And the sugar beets are crossbreeding and contaminating all the brassicas. So there's just all kinds of different plants getting contaminated with this herbicide-tolerant genetics. And the fact that they not only beat them, but they crush them, like 66, 34, being outspent 3 to 1. I mean, it just shows there's just a lot of momentum happening. In Oregon, I feel like it's just an ideal battleground for that reason, among others. So, I live on a, on a really fertile, large island on Vancouver Island, and there's lots of agriculture around. And I, I would love to see the whole island turn into a, a GMO-free zone because you can preserve like soil biodiversity when just everyone does it because you have a natural barrier. I have no idea if that will ever happen, but I would totally support that kind of an idea where doing it in a county, doing it in a valley, doing it in a geographically contiguous space so that we can preserve natural soil biology. Because if, if we keep doing this everywhere, we'll have permanently altered the planetary biome uh, in a way that's, honestly, we have no idea what we're doing. And spraying these chemicals everywhere <laughs> has long-term multi-generational consequences. Uh, and I agree with you, labeling is the first thing to do. Um, what is Dr. Bronner's doing? I mean, are you directly supporting these initiatives? Uh, you say we won in Vermont and whatnot. So are you applying sort of company resources to supporting um, the idea that people should know what's in their stuff? Yeah, absolutely. We were you know, major financial contributors to the different um, political efforts across the board. Um, you know, pretty much any, if you're a group or entity like doing good work, we're, we're going to support you. And, um, you know, and then organizationally right now in Oregon, our head of marketing, uh, Christina Bogazi is actually based in Portland and she's a real force. Um, and we're just leveraging, like we have like 30 demo people in stores traveling around. We actually got these neon blue turquoise GMO corn seeds from Ray Seidler's amazing former senior scientist at EPA. You just watch from the inside out the, the collusion between the chemical industry and, and the EPA as they just eviscerated any meaningful regulation of GMOs and pesticides. So we've got these, you know, this great visual prop we're rolling around with. And but yeah, in general, we're just leveraging all our all our different resources into these fights. Um, you know, at the same time, marijuana cannabis reforms on the ballot there. And so, which you know, I never thought I would be only spending you know, 1% of my energy on that. But that's kind of like we've reached a cultural tipping point, and I'm not really that concerned about it. Um, whereas, you know, genetic engineering, we're, we're close. We're close to, I think, a transformational moment. I mean, it's still another decade or something as far as anything super fundamental. But, I mean, we're kind of running out of time, like you say, and you can't do this. We can't be killing the soil, and there's only so much, you know, chemical load we can do that on this and there's, you know, the recovery period and, I mean, we have to, con you know, just become conscious, make good choices, make wise, sustainable, sustainable food choices, and change our agricultural policies that are just, you know, reinforcing all the bad agricultural practices and punishing the right ones. How do you keep bad stuff out of your soap? I mean, there's a lot of agricultural inputs that go into Dr. Bronner's soap. So how do you go through your whole supply chain and know that you're not getting basically unhealthy stuff into your soap? Yeah, well, uh, we're you know certified organic under the USDA, USDA's National Organic Program that certifies food, which is you know not a perfect program, but it's you know pretty meaningful and rigorous. And you know depending on your certifier and your own degree of integrity, can you can do a, a lot to guarantee the purity of your 
product and ingredients. And we actually have our own projects in our major material. So coconut oil is our number one material. And we had a tsunami relief project in Sri Lanka that kind of just one thing turned to another. And we have our own fair trade coconut factory in Sri Lanka in the Coconut Triangle and work with smallholder farmers there and have compost programs and, you know, organic trainings. And um, so it's like a super secure, pure source of our coconut oil. We have a, a really cool palm oil project in Ghana. It's biodiverse. It kind of grew out of this nonprofit that was doing really good work. You know, palm oil plantations in Indonesia are generally horrible and are destroying rainforests and orangutan habitat. And it's you know, really yep. bad. So, you know, we've got a really cool project in Ghana. There's actually another really cool one in Ecuador that we're starting to partner with. Um, olive oil, we source uh, primarily from Palestinian farmers in the West Bank um, who never didn't grow organic. And then, um, to be clear, we're not anti-Israel. We, we source a minority, 10% of our need from the Israeli side. Um, Dr. Barnard's sister actually went to the Engel Kibbutz uh, out of Nazi Germany and that got family to Israel. But, uh, and, and actually it's a cousin, like a second cousin is our, uh, turns out it's a beautiful supplier, if you're right. And let's see, uh, you know, hemp oil, we use certified organic hemp oil out of, out of Canada. And, you know, I guess fortunately, as far as genetic engineering goes, we don't use any at-risk ingredients. You know, we don't use any soy, corn, canola, cotton materials in our, in our products. So we don't have, fortunately, those kind of problems that other companies do. That's remarkable for a soap company anyway. I mean, finding, even if you go to, you know, a good organic store, the number of, of soaps that are made out of basically soybeans and canola, and it's, oh, that ingredient's not organic. You're like, but that's the major oil in your soap. Uh, so it, it's so easy to, to cut corners there. And, and from what I perceive, I haven't really seen any corner cutting, um, at least in the 20 or so years I've known about your products. Uh, how do you how do you maintain that? Like, how do you, you keep from, from getting those economic pressures to, you know, just put a little bit of the less pure stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we've just been rewarded and lucky to be able to make the right choices and have customers who support what we're doing. And if we have to raise prices, you know, we explain, Hey, we're going organic, fair trade, you know, this is why and people dig it. So, you know, we're just in a real fortunate position and I don't know, whatever good karma, like we're, <laughs> You know, I guess we're lucky and, uh, you know, just we really try to, you know, do the right thing. And, you know, it's not like we're perfect. There's definitely, you know, less than perfect things going on. But um, for the most part, we're always trying to, to, you know, do the right thing. And it's our ethics. I mean, our ethics is like it's not just what we do with our profits out there. It's like what are we doing in our backyard? Like our operation needs to be clean. Our supply chains need to be clean. As like the first responsibility, you know, before, you know, giving money to the you know breast cancer foundation because that's your target demographic that you're going to sell your cosmetics to, you know I mean? That's like a lot of the social responsibility that motivates other companies and it's pretty kind of hollow. Whereas for us, it's, you know, at the core. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's um, mostly we're just very fortunate, I think to, um, and, and it's not like we don't have difficult decisions to make, but generally we've just, um, you know, taking the high road and kind of left out, I guess. You've just kind of built a company culture that where you, you just don't do that. Uh, well, it's, it's admirable. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of work there. It, it helps have some scale, but uh, I'm, uh, I, I share the similar values there. Like you, you just don't want to cut quality 
um, to make an extra 20 cents. It's not worth it. And it's, it's not what people want. So you have to lie, uh, if you want to cut quality and not tell people, and that's just not, not cool. So kudos for sticking with that for 150 years. That's uh, something I haven't seen a lot of companies do. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, like, I mean, a good example recently actually was Costco. So we're going to go, we're going into Costco and we had a certain projection and we just went into do a test in Northern California and it was like, holy crap, we're just, it's just taken off and it's crazy. And if we actually were to go nationwide or just do grow too fast, I mean, on one hand, it's like, wow, that's like 10 million bucks that we're leaving on the table if we don't do it. And, you know, look at all the good we can do with that. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, that's going to totally this stress and, dest- and destroy the supply chains we have. It's going to like, you know, force us to go to uncertified sources and, you know, if we just kind of do it more organic, just take a little more time, we can just go ahead and just grow into this. So it's all about, you know, just kind of maybe it's like a little bit of a slow growth mentality. Not that we're growing that slow, we're growing pretty fast, but not just going for chasing business, just to chase it. You know? Yeah, it's Costco is an interesting, uh, an interesting company. I I had some meetings with Costco and. They're really straightforward. Like, you know, if we're going to be more than 20% of the revenues for a small company, we won't touch the deal because we found that we stress the companies too much and we don't want to break our suppliers. And I, I thought that was really cool of them. Like, like they, they were very into partnering. Uh, and uh, I say that mostly because I want them to buy my book when it launches December 2nd. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I found them to be like a really reputable company where the supplier, you know, purchasing just, discussion was really just above board. So it, it's cool that you went through and you did it and you, you stuck with your values. But uh, I, I was I was actually really impressed at the way they they looked at their effect on the business ecosystem as well as the environmental one. So They are like, when it comes to, I say, big box retailer, like far and away the best. Like, you know, they pay their people extremely well, they have really good benefits, they're lifers. You know, whereas like Walmart, you know, this is horrible, the turnover is huge, they're doing you know, food drives at Christmas time because no one's making enough money. Yeah, I mean, Costco is just a total another category of, of retailer for sure. Well, they, they haven't gone so far as to talk about, you know, constructive capitalism, but you have. Uh, how do you define constructive capitalism? Like, what what is that? Well, so my granddad would say it's basically where you share the profits with the workers on earth from which you make it. Um, and... You know, and it's just like basically respecting that everything we make and consume has a human labor component. And is that labor respected or is it exploited? And all too often it's, you know, it's exploited. It's just, you know, our stuff is made in conditions that are just hellish and horrible in the wages and working conditions. So constructive capitalism was my granddad's term for, you know, just being respectful and uh, in your business dealings, making sure everyone's getting a fair deal out of the, you know, arrangement. So, but, you know, given that, let the free market rip, you know, I mean, it was, all, <laughs> you know, you know, it was not a communist by any means, but, you know, but he did believe in, you know, respecting people and, and, you know, being fair and, uh, you know, I'm a little more liberal than he is, but um, just really do, you know, respect also that, you know, like you need to reward initiative. I believe in private enterprise and private property, you know, the, the power of individuals to really, you know, make a difference. So I think that's kind of where he's at with it. 
The idea is you can still be a capitalist, but you can treat people like human beings and not destroy the planet while you're doing it. Exactly. Uh, that seems uh, seems like a reasonable goal to me. <laughs> Certainly one I share. Yeah. No, it's just, it's very simple. And, and yeah. And, you know, comes back to us in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. You, re- you reap what you sow, as they say, in, uh, in agriculture anyway and in other parts of life. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up on the end of the show, and I think everyone uh, in everyone who's listening to this knows where to find Dr. Bronner's soap because you've you know you're running a, a big brand that's available at you know Whole Foods and and many many other grocers as you know a, a very clean soap one I've used for many years. But maybe could you tell people where they could find out more about what you're doing on the GMO initiative uh, so that uh, we can get the word out about that. Absolutely. So uh, OregonRightToKnow.org is the website. You can go there, volunteer, number one, wherever you live in the country, sign up for the phone banking. You know, what we have and they don't is people. And people talking to people is the most effective voter contact. You know, just hearing from real people, just laying it down, reassuring, encountering their BS is crucial. Um, You know, we look at the rhythm of the last couple of ballot measures, you know, they evaporate support early, but then we close super hard, like a tsunami. We just like surge hard at the end. We've almost won twice, you know, 49-51, you know, hard, close losses. And feel like this time in Oregon, we've got it. So if we get enough people signed up, plugged in, um, you know, we have this. But then also we need firepower. So whoever's uh, in a, you know, place that they can donate, we do need to have, you know, critical mind share on broadcast TV. We need to be talking to People where they're at, and a lot of times that's in front of the nightly news, and um, you know, just making sure our messages, messages, and messengers have, you know, reached a, a threshold. You know, we're never going to outspend them, but we do need to get, you know, a certain critical level to have a realistic shot. And I feel really good. I mean, we're actually everything's cranking so much better. I would say than the last couple cycles. So, you know, pretty much across the board, we're in a really good position. I think to close this and close it out and win it. And um, we win in Oregon and that'll shift the country. That means like New England will go, we'll get New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, remove the triggers in Connecticut and Maine, join Vermont, uh, New York and Connecticut are in the second circuit with Vermont. That'll flush the second circuit where right now we're in you know, a legal battle or the movement's in a legal battle with, with biotech over Vermont's mandatory labeling. And courts are very political. You know, they respond to the cultural zeitgeist. And if we make this a cultural inevitability, then the courts will do the right thing. And, if we don't, then it's you know more dicey. So well, it's awesome to see uh, an entrepreneur running a, a sizable company, spending so much energy and, and time on something that matters like that. And you know, thanks for paying attention and thanks for caring. I I really uh, I really appreciate you doing that. Say that URL one more time. Uh, it's OregonRightToKnow.org. All right. We'll link to that in the show notes. But given the timing of this and that November fourth, uh, there's a, a vote on this. It's uh, called Measure 92 in Oregon. I would love to see that win. Like we, we need more more wins like that. This is not to ban anything. It's just to say, hey, I have a right to know what's in my food. And there's I, I just can't see a reason to vote against that. And if a food manufacturer tells you it's going to raise costs, um, that's a lie. I am a food manufacturer. <laughs> I make chocolate, I make coffee, I make uh, edible oils, and it's not going to change anything meaningful. I had to put a sticker on there anyway, and yeah. doesn't change the costs. No, no, it's ridiculous. 
Well, there's there's one question I've asked every guest on the show, and I honestly have no idea uh, how you're going to answer it. But I ask everyone based on on their life, uh, or we'll just say based on your life, uh, your life wisdom, not just what you do with soap or any anything else, but top three things you've learned, top three recommendations for people who want to perform better or basically just kick more ass at life, not at any one thing like a sport. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, just check in with yourself, you know, just, you know, make sure you're doing when you're making a, a, a hard choice and, um, you know, just check in with the heart and spend some time with it. Um, you know, I guess take care of yourself health wise, but don't be afraid to party and cut, you know, cut loose, uh, you know, and I mean, for me, I guess I like, get kind of on the psychedelic train, like, that's very helpful. It's really helped me center and find my kind of higher moral center. Um, you know, cannabis is a great kind of daily check-in for me. Um, you know, I'll be in an argument with my wife and I'll be like, man, I don't want to not be right. I know I'm going to hit this and realize she's got a point. So, you know, I'm, I'm wrong. And, but obviously that's just the best that you can just have like something that can help you, you know, realize your higher truth and I don't meditate, but I'm sure that's another super valid path. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, just, you know, whatever it is that can, you know, bring you to your center and spend more time in your center. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, it, it's been great chatting with you. I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, and, uh, I, I gotta say, if you're listening to this and you haven't tried Dr. Bonner's soap, uh, it's legit. Like it smells good and it's got nothing in it. Uh, my, my rule at our house, one we follow pretty well is if you wouldn't put it in your mouth, don't put it on your skin and uh, you guys make that cut. So I, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And brushing your teeth, we're going to come out with toothpaste. It doesn't, you know, it's not the best tasting, but yeah, it's super healthy and, and won't hurt you. I can't wait to try it. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, well, thank you, Dave, for, for having me and the opportunity. A lot of people don't realize that I went to a great deal of effort to make Keurig-compatible coffee cartridges. This means that if you have one of those machines that can take a K-cup, you can use the Bulletproof coffee cartridges in the same machine. The difference is that the Bulletproof cartridges, which are not licensed by Keurig, are made from 100% recyclable materials, and they're nitrogen-flushed for maximum freshness. You can check those out on UpgradedSelf.com. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. 
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.